Tremendous excitement. We are starting a new topic. Medicine in the Talmud. There are a, a few introductions that I would like to make. And we're going to weave the introductions, which will not all be made right now. We'll weave it in together with learning from some passages in the Talmud that deals a lot with various medical treatments that are given. We're going to begin, for those who would like now or later to look actually inside the book, we are going to Mesechta to the tractate of Gittin in the Talmud to page 67b, and for those who use an art scroll to page 67b3. Now I want to point out a couple of things, like we mentioned, I would like to give a few introductions, the first of which is just very observational. During the time that the Gemara was compiled, and let's be clear that the Gemara was compiled, was put together, uh, let's say in year, in the 5th century, year 450 to the Common Era, the Gemara wasn't written then. The Gemara is a gathering of, it's a compilation of hundreds of years of commentary on the Mishnah. Which means that many concepts and ways of approaching different areas um, is not coming at all from the 5th century. It was just put down on paper then. But this has been going on, let's say, for at least a thousand years. A big part of it goes all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu. But no doubt that certain ways of addressing certain topics or certain um, wordings that were used certain phrases that were used, which are very important to take the bigger picture and understand. You can understand a lot about a people when you understand better the language, is something that has been evolving over a large amount of time. And we know from the Talmud itself, during that era, let's even go back to the times of Hanukkah, all right, which happened around 200 years before the Temple was destroyed. The Talmud was written, let's say, around 400 years after. So 700 years prior, the Greeks were a very dominant force in the world. There was a time that they were, so to say, the superpowers. They actually had a lot of control over the Jewish people in Israel, which is what led to this miracle of Hanukkah. And the Greeks had a lot of wisdom that is acknowledged in the Gemara. They had a lot of philosophy. They had a lot of medicine. And what is what is extremely fascinating is that the Talmud makes zero reference to the methods of healing, to the medicine that was practiced during their era for over hundreds of years. In spite of the fact that many great rabbis from this era, they were... For, profet- for their profession, they were doctors, just parenthetically. It was extremely common during the earlier years that even clergy had a profession that they practiced. Um, so you had Shmuel, just quoting one famous, um, very important uh, rabbi from the time relatively earlier on in the Talmud. I mean, the Talmud is filled with Shmuel. Shmuel was a doctor who practiced medicine. Shmuel was an astronomer. And, and, and on and on and on. Now, 
the medicine that they practiced was no doubt, at least in large part, what we would call the Greek medicine or the dominant up-to-date medicine of the time. The Talmud makes no reference to it. The, the scope of Talmudic medicine, which is quite vast, if someone were to take from the whole Talmud and just put together every part that deals with actual actual medicine, it's a lot, it's a lot. Dealing with all different types of ailments, whether it's elements of the spirit, which is something relatively new to the world. Today we understand that there is, you know, mental health and there are remedies, right, that one would get prescribed to if one were to need so by a psychiatrist. The Talmud is filled with demonic possessions of the person and there is no doubt that there's a lot of overlap, if not a total overlap, of what the Talmud will call someone was possessed by a demon and they were behaving like a crazy person to what we would call mental illness. The Talmud speaks about people that are depressed. So there is medicine for psychiatric reasons. You have physical wounds, whether external or internal, you have certain illnesses, even though the Talmud doesn't use not the word bacteria nor viruses, but when you read them, you understand what they are referring to, uh, fevers, okay? And you have a, a, a whole elaborate Talmudic um, medicinal cabinet, primarily using herbs, primarily, but not exclusive to. And I'm not even addressing part of the Talmudic medicine borders with the magical. Whether it's incantations or whether it's mixing various potions, but you can see when we'll learn, at least we'll learn some of it, this is not that eating this type of herb and this type of plant in that, matter, in that quantity, it's going to strengthen that organ. This is already um, taking a certain item which represents a certain spiritual power and you mix it with another spirit. You have that also. So aside of the um, incantation part of the medicine, the magical part of the medicine, there is pushit, like medical advice of potions to make, the schmear on the skin that ripped. And, and there is no, I'm, I'm not, not that I have knowledge, but I, I learned from people that really know a lot in medicine and they know a lot in the Talmud and they point out that there is no overlap. The Gemara and its sages completely in what they recorded, they ignore the local medicine of the time. And many historians know that they practice the current up-to-date of their time's medicine. So that's a very important observation to speak out and to be aware of. Um, another important intro, and I'm no, I know that we learned a little bit about medicine before, and I'm sure I said it then. And what I'm saying now really should have been the first thing that I said, that there, there, there was a ban a very strong rabbinic man put into place around 900 years ago on all of us that we are not allowed to practice Talmudic medicine. And the reason why they made that ban was because the Talmud, in the vast majority of cases, will not give you precise quantities. This is not only concerning medicine, but concerning everything. When you know, when there are so many halachas that we know of that are connected to a quantity, just for example, you have to eat a kezayis of matzah on Pesach. Well, how much is a kezayis, right? And, and there are so many different opinions. 
right? So we are familiar with ounces. We are familiar with the modern day uh, measuring cups, measurements. Not everyone is consenting that three ounces is one revius, etc., etc. In other words, the quantities are not clear. And it's no question that if a person were to take all of the ingredients, but they would not use them in their proper quantity, it's like when you bake a cake, you can have all your ingredients, but if you don't put the right amounts, and if the heat in the oven, you know, if you don't follow all the steps, you'll have a disaster of a cake. And there was a fear, we're going back by the rabbis that are called the Kadmonim, that people, being that the Talmud, in the vast majority of cases, did not prescribe quantities. People will think that they are following the medication and they're going to take it and they will not get healed and they're going to all of a sudden think that the words of the sages are not true. So in order for that not to happen, and now maybe I'm happy by divine providence, I gave my first intro and the first intro really explains the second intro, which is that throughout there was concurring different systems of medicine. Lahavdil, Lahavdil. You're going out to the east. So there's a whole eastern way of, medic, of, of medicine, whether it is acupuncture or other types of um, energy movement around in the body that Bechlal doesn't acknowledge, doesn't take into account. If you go to those schools, you're not going to also have to go through medical schools, what we call in the western world a medical school. So you have eastern medicine, you have western medicine, you have Talmudic medicine. It's like a whole category, which is fascinating. And they knew of the western medicine, and they actually practiced the western medicine. So they were able to afford to say, listen, Chavre, being that Talmudic medicine wasn't passed down to us, it was not recorded in a way that if you were to follow the formula, you would know that you're doing what the Talmud says to do. So they said, we prohibit you from doing it. That's one, one, one part of the ban. Now, there is another part of the ban, which gets a little bit mystical. And that is that the rabbis in, in, in France, the grandchildren of Rashi, now we're going back a little bit less time, around 700 years ago, they said that there are certain anatomical parts of the human body that slightly changes over time which is what today, after Darwin, the, the Goyim will call, there's an evolution. There's a physical, it's very subtle, but there are certain things within the body that changes. Uh, we don't think that the height of the human being changed that much from our grandparents in Egypt till today, but there are actually actually the size of other body parts. Um, their, their fingers, their hands might have been relatively larger. And therefore because of some physical anatomical changes within the person, even if one were to follow the exact measurements of the potions of the medicines that we describe in the Talmud, it may, it may need a, a, uh, an upgrade. It may need to be uh, updated. And we don't know how to update it. And again, it mi- and therefore, it might not work. And because of that, the goal is, is for people not to think that the, that the wisdom in the Talmud is not correct, so don't practice it. Okay. And I would like to speak about intro number three. And intro number, number three really should be, should be properly 
appreciated, even though it might not at first glance. And that is, is that before we approach every topic or any topic, it's always important to, to take the largest step back as possible and to ask the most fundamental questions. And even though that I'm sure everyone knows the answer, but I'll just point out to you how these simple answers are not simple at all. And the precise way of wording the answer has huge consequence. So here's my question. Who says it's permitted to heal anyone? There are certain interventions in nature. We know that from the Chumash, that one is allowed, that one is actually commended to do, to upgrade. And there are certain manipulations of the world that we are not allowed to do. I'll give you an example. We can't even cook meat and milk. Meat that's kosher and meat and milk that's kosher. You can't cook them together. Forget about eating it later. You can't even cook it together. One is not allowed to plant two seeds of different species together. We are not allowed to graft a branch from one tree into another tree if it's from a different species. However, that's defined and it's very complicated, these laws. In other words, that there are certain manipulations to the world that we are to do, and sometimes we are not allowed to do. And I know when we speak about healing, so, you know, we're just, we're using one word for a whole array of many different greater categories, and each greater category certainly has many, many subcategories. So we spoke about mental health. And we can include emotional health. We can make it into a separate category. Then we have... When it comes to physical health, is it that a limb is getting weak or was there a wound and the wound happened for internal reasons or was there there's something external? Are we always allowed to manipulate the body to heal the body? Who says that's permitted? And everything has to be sourced in the Torah. So listen to this. So in the Torah, the Torah speaks about healing in the context of one injuring his fellow a person, whether that was done purposefully or whether that was done inadvertently, makes no difference in this context that if I injured you, I'm obligated to you various financial obligations, various, really there are five types of financial obligations and one of them is I'm obligated to pay for your healing. And the Torah says these words, which is a repetition. And surely the one who did the injuring should see to it that the injured party gets healed. Now, the Torah doesn't say the word doctor, but we have an oral tradition, as the Talmud says, doesn't mean that I should do the healing. Not everyone is able to heal. But if I injured you, whether it was done on purpose or by accident, I was driving a car and God forbid my brakes failed, and my car connected into your car and you got hurt. God forbid. I'm obligated, amongst other things, to pay for yours, says the Talmud, medical treatment. And quoting the precise words, Mikan, from this verse, Verapa Yerape, from here we know that Niten Rishus Leroyfe Lerapois, that the doctor has permission to heal. We don't say, ah, this is a part of nature that let be. 
We don't say, well, it depends. If the, if the wound came because of human intervention, then humans can intervene to heal. But if a person naturally got ill, maybe that's the will of God, leave it be. We'd never make that difference. No matter what, what the source of the illness is, we always, let's begin with the first step, there is permission on a doctor to heal. Okay, now again, that sounds simple, but it's not simple at all. And let me just point out to you, that will be the final intro for today, a huge paradox that we find in the Torah, in the oral Torah. The Talmud says many times, and doctors love this statement, they love this statement, that a doctor that heals for free, his healing is worth nothing. The Talmud speaks about the importance of the patient paying the doctor to the point again that if someone was healed for free then the healing is worthless sounds nice i know that psychologists love that statement because you know when you go to a doctor at least you walk out with a pill you walk out with a cast when you talk to someone and bar hashem they charge fortunes and they're good the ones that are good they're worth every penny but you have to pay but here is the dilemma. The dilemma is, is that if the Torah gives permission for a doctor to heal, and mind you, sometimes healing won't only be taking away discomfort, that also, sometimes healing would mean that someone's life without medical intervention will come to an end a lot sooner than if this person will get medical treatment. In other words, the doctor was given permission to be a lifesaver. Saving lives is a religious obligation. And there is a rule throughout the Torah that religious obligations are obligations to be done whether paid or not. I have to keep Shabbos. Not only do I have to keep Shabbos, not only will no one pay me to keep Shabbos, but by the laws of nature, if I will not work on Shabbos, I will earn less money on Shabbos. It means I'm going to go out of pocket in order to keep my religious obligation. Tuition, kosher food, and we all know that as a, you know, we take it for granted. In other words, once something is a mitzvah, once something is an obligation that God gave us, then it's not something in which money should be taken into account at all. So the question is, on one hand, we have a tradition that we have to pay a doctor. How can the doctor receive payment? The doctor is doing his or her religious duty. Ah, okay. So we're going to come back to this. I see a hand. No, no hand up. Okay. So these will be our three introductions. And I want to begin with uh, with mental illness, which now is a given a category. But again, the Gemara has, you know, like I said, Eastern medicine, Western Talmudic medicine, a whole new category. The, 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 the opening of this many pages, like dreams, this is the greatest amount of pages together in the Talmud, speaking about all different types of remedies on all different levels some of them technical some of them magical again the talmud is in the tractate of gittin page 67b the mishnah here we're learning the tractate of gittin so we're speaking about someone who chooses to give a divorce to his wife and when he makes such a decision even though he does not need to write the document by himself but he has to explicitly appoint someone to do it 
And the person, the husband, or the ex-husband-to-be, needs to be mindful. He has to be fully within his uh, mental capacity when he gives that instruction. So if he's under the influence, for example, and he gives, tells someone that you are right a divorce for my wife, that instruction is of no value. So the Mishnah begins, Misha achazoi kurdiyakos, someone who was seized by kurdiyakos, that was a name of an illness which was of a mental nature. And he tells someone else, right out to get to my wife. So the Mishnah says, Omarkum. That instruction is of no consequence because he wasn't in his, in his normal mental state of being. And the Mishnah continues, that's not relevant to us. So begins the Talmud. First of all, my kurdiyakos. What type of illness is that? Really, the Talmud is asking, what triggers this mental illness? And the answer is, If a person drank a lot of very freshly pressed wine from the wine press. Wine are one of those few things in the world that everyone will agree that the older it gets, the better it gets. It ages, it becomes more valuable. Not only that, it only really becomes proper wine, according to the Gemara, the way we define wine, after 40 days from its being pressed. Earlier than that, that wine is like an immature fruit. So are fruits healthy? Well, I don't know what type of uh, health gurus someone might be following, but let's go with the presumption that fruits in the right amount, at the right time of the year, or the right fruits are very healthy, but not if they're not, not, if they're not ripe. Bechal, anything unripe normally is unhealthy. Wine, I know wine doesn't grow off the tree, but wine that's freshly pressed was not considered healthy. And if a person consumed an amount which was beyond what one's body can handle, so they would be affected by this illness called kurdiyakos. This doesn't mean they're only affected with it when they're under the influence. It was an illness that needed to be treated. And that's what the Talmud is speaking about. So asks the Gemara, why did the Mishnah have to say someone who was seized by kardiokos and no one knows what kardiokos is? And then you have to explain by someone who drank a lot of freshly pressed wine. Why didn't the Mishnah say if someone was overcome by drinking new wine? It's clear. It's a lot clearer. So answers the Gemara ah, that the way they would deal with mental illness, one of the ways they dealt in the Talmud with mental illness was by writing an amulet. We'll speak about it a lot. And part of the potency of amulets in Aramaic, it's called a kemaya or a kemaya. The amulet has to call out the mental illness or the demon by its name. We'll call it a demon. That's what the Gemara says. Someone is seized by a demon. And the name of the demon, the ruach, the Gemara says, that enters the person, that possesses the person, that consumed too much of this fresh wine, is called kordiakos. And now, when you write the Kamea and you're going to be talking to the demon to get out, you are addressing the demon by its name. And this is so insightful, psychologically now, that, that when there is a mental illness, there is a tremendous medicinal benefit of naming it. And then, when you name it, you have a greater chance of cleansing yourself from it. Amongst many other reasons that will continue, 
anything that you name, you limited. More than that, even if the name is a very grandiose name and the name itself indicates that it's something that's greater than you, the fact that you were the one that named it gives you power over it. You named it, it did not name you. And all of these demonic mental illnesses is very challenging to overcome, but one key approach to getting better is knowing that you have the power to overcome it. And if I'll remember, I would like to read a letter in the beginning of next week's or during next week's class that the Rebbe wrote that is an extremely powerful letter that doesn't have to be explained or expounded upon, simply read about this importance of anyone who is facing a medical challenge. Part of their healing is them knowing that they have the power to get better. And you naming an illness is part of that power. So Naomi is asking, what is a demonic mental illness? It's a certain mental illness. The Gemara calls it you were possessed by a demon. And I would call it today as someone who's mentally not well. And I know there are many varieties of mental illnesses. The Talmud doesn't always specify, which is again one of the reasons that we mentioned that we should not practice Talmudic medicine is because there are many things that are still vague to the point that we don't know exactly what the illness is or we might not know exactly the the medicine what it is and we might mix match and have terrible results and say that the the Chachamim were wrong and the Chachamim were not wrong at all. Any questions? Um, Why do you think that it can just be written clear out in the Torah that you can... uh... Have a doctor. Uh, that that's that Yafa. That that's a great question, but there are certain questions that have a specific answer. There are certain questions that, as you'll learn, God willing, more and more and more, you will see that the majority of the Torah is that way. I'm not answering okay. your question. Yeah. First of all, I'm stating a fact, but let me give one one angle of answering your question. If you were out to write a book, Yafa, addressing one theme, then you would write it to the best of your ability. But if you're writing a book that has in it multi, multi layers of themes and you have to all put it together. So if you would be clearer when you are addressing one layer of what you want to talk about, it would, it would make that phrase be a lot more vague or completely nonsensical as it also at the same time addresses another layer. So the Torah is Pshat Remesh Drush Soit and each one is to be understood on 70 levels. So it, only a God can write a Torah. But it, the, the, the price will be, so to say, is that in order for it to work on all the angles, some of them will be vague. And it's like a vague. But it's enough. It suffices for the Torah to write verapo yerape to teach us that a doctor is permitted to heal. And one of the questions we're going to leave open is, if that's the case, how may a doctor charge any money? I, I got a little bit confused. Okay. Um, specifically with uh, demonic mental illness, which I guess the demon will um, take over the, the body or the mind of a person. And I guess that could be through um, either like an outside source of something spiritual coming in, or it could be um, like more specifically something like um, mind control coming from a not Kadusha source like television or, you know, Whoever's making those shows with a dark energy and it could enter a person's mind and could cause mental disease. Um, 
I guess that's, is that different than a chemical mental imbalance? I'm a little bit confused. So Shoshana, no, you're not confused. We're being very vague. We're being very vague. And I know we're being vague. In other words, there are so many categories in mental illness. I don't know what exactly which one Kardiyakos is referring to. The Talmud uses the words Kardiyakos is someone who is possessed by a demon. And I, all I want to add is, is whenever the Talmud says someone is possessed by a demon, which sounds completely unrelatable to, make it relatable by calling it mental illness. And it's correct to say that any type of mental illness is someone that's possessed by something outside, not within the person, some energy that entered the person that's driving the person mad. And was it that person's choice? Like- not, well, in this case, yes. In this case, the cause was the overconsumption of undiluted, of un, of unmatured wine. Not that the person wanted to become ill, but the person became weak, and that weakness, whenever the person is weak, so unholy things and people take advantage when a person, when they're down. So we become vulnerable when we are weak physically, we become vulnerable when we are weak emotionally and mentally as well.